Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Usually on the podcast, we talk with the author of an interesting new publication that takes a focused look at some topic in sports. But every so often, we step back and take a broader look at an area of world sport or the literature of sport. For these special seminar episodes, we hear from a variety of guests from around the world who look at sport from different angles. As with any good seminar, the hope is that listeners will get a fresh perspective on a familiar topic, or a crash course in something entirely new. At the least, our guests will offer plenty of suggestions for good sports books, if you're looking for some reading material in the months ahead. For this seminar episode, we're looking at one of the most crowded sections of the sports library, the shelves devoted to autobiographies and memoirs. As someone who keeps a close watch on new sports books, I can tell you that each month brings a host of new memoirs, from star players to unknown fans. But this vast number of volumes also includes some of the most acclaimed pieces of writing on sport. If you look at the list of best sports books ever, compiled by Sports Illustrated Magazine and The Guardian newspaper, you'll find plenty of autobiographies included in their rankings. We're going to start the episode by looking at the memoirs of fans. As sports fans, the seasons of our lives and the relationships we cherish are interwoven with the teams that we follow. Skilled writers among us are able to capture the feelings of loss and transcendence that we experience as fans. The best of these memoirs can speak to all of us who follow sports in a way that makes us smile, nod, and laugh in recognition that others go through the same turmoil that we do. Dave Roberts is the author of two memoirs that have been well-received by critics and readers in his native England. His first book, The Bromley Boys, is a story of his years as a young fan of the Lower Division London Club. His most recent book, titled 32 Programs, was shortlisted for the 2011 William Hill Sports Book Award. The book centers on Dave's collection of match day programs, built over decades of watching soccer, and the memories that each program holds. To start the interview, Dave gives a sketch of that book, which describes how this collection of more than a thousand programs was whittled down to 32. 32 programs came about when I moved to the States from New Zealand, and uh, there was limited space in the luggage, so I wanted to bring my entire collection of football programs, which was uh, well over a thousand, and there wasn't enough space for that, so I had to basically prune the collection down to the 32 that were most important to me. And uh, 
story of behind each one. So was there a clear first choice for your for your, the 32 programs you selected? Yeah, there was a clear first choice because it was the first uh, program I ever got. But uh, some of the others were a bit uh, trickier than that. Yeah. Did you did you have then uh, did you apply systematic criteria that you used in in the selection of the other 31? I did at the beginning, which was uh, based on monetary value, because I thought that would be a, a smart way of doing it. But uh, as time went on, it was sort of more emotional connections to the games and the the programs and memories. Dave, you write in your book that uh, the, the male of the species is programmed to collect things, and I, I think this is particularly the case with the with the male sports fan. So I'll ask you, what yeah. did you learn about this relationship between a fan and his things in, in the course of writing the book? I, I learned that they must never be separated. I think they're, <laughs> they're a very important part of, uh, of what you are, and uh, it's still one of my biggest regrets in life that I, I had to leave so many programs behind. You know, in reality, you can't sort of narrow it down to just 32. They were the 32 most important ones. But I think each program has, has a memory, and it is a part of your who you are. And since you've moved to the States, have you started new collections then? I haven't. I'm, I'm still, still trying to put my old collection together back. By Whenever I have enough money, I get my ex-wife to send a few more programs from the, from the collection, which she is looking after for me. Oh, okay. So you're you're trying to recreate what you uh, what you had. How many are you are you up to now out of the more than one thousand that you had? <laughs> I'm, I'm about ten percent of the of the collection now, but about 120. And I've been over to England a couple of times, and I have added to the collection there just uh, some very small time games I've attended. So I've read some comments of readers on online about the book, and and I noticed a couple a couple readers came away from the book with, uh, how to put it, uh, some negative feelings uh, toward, toward your wife. Was that, part of the in, was that part of the intention in writing the book? No, she'll, she'll kill me if she finds out about that. I don't think she reads reviews, luckily. But, uh, yeah, I've had a few emails as well saying, basically, how could you live with such a woman? But, uh, maybe I didn't get it across very well, but she was just being practical, and there was, we, you know, we only took, I think, two suitcases. And there just wasn't enough room for a thousand uh, football programs, so I can see her point of view. But I, yeah, there's still there's still a hint of resentment there. Yeah, yeah. So, Dave, as you as you might have the same view as I do, I I, I find many fan memoirs to be, uh, you know, what would the word be, parochial. I'll say it for myself in that. I don't want to read somebody's book about how he's a New York Mets fan or a Chicago Bears fan because, well, I don't like the Mets or the Bears. <laughs> but so, but with both of your books, both uh, 32 programs and your first book, The Bromley Boys, so these yeah. are fan, fan memoirs, and they've been well-received by critics, by readers. These are popular books. And, and so I'll ask in your conversations with readers and what they tell you about your books – what is it about your stories that resonates with people, no matter which team they support or even which sport they follow? I think they can, or the ones I've spoken to anyway, certainly seem to be able to relate to it because not all teams are hugely successful. They're not all like the teams you've just mentioned, or the, the Manchester Uniteds and the Liverpools. And I sort of more concentrate on lower division teams that no one's really heard of. But I think the experience is a universal. I've sort of, the cold, wet nights watching a team lose seven or eight nil—that's you know, that's never really been a focus of, uh, of books 
before, as far as I can make out. Anyway, and I think it's just yeah, most most football fans of smaller teams understand that and can relate to it. Mm-hmm. Which something uh, somebody who is a fan of Manchester United wouldn't wouldn't be able to express in their fan memoir, and and people wouldn't latch onto it. I think I think that's right. Yeah. Dave, when you write about um, the matches you attended when you were when you were younger, so uh, the experience of attending a football match in England today is much different than in the days you describe in your book. As, yeah. as you're writing your books, do you have this sense of, of loss or lament for the changes in, in English football, or do you think, thank God those days are over? No, no, the, the, the first point you made is, is the one that I can identify with. I, I definitely feel a sense of loss. I've been... When I went back uh, last year, I went to see my team, Bromley, who are you know, a non-league team that no no one, certainly in the States, has ever heard of. And they're, they're sort of uh, suddenly paying their players outrageous sums, and they've got sponsorship, they've got new seats, a new grandstand, and it's just, it just feels wrong. It not, doesn't feel like grassroots football anymore. So even at that level, you see, you see the commercialization of football? Absolutely, and I also tried to get tickets to watch uh, Arsenal, and uh, they were they were playing Southampton, which is a fairly middling fixture, and there were seventy thousand seats in the stadium, I believe. They were all sold out years before, or months before, rather. It's impossible to go to a Premier League game now mm-hmm. unless you're sort of a member of the club. Mm-hmm. And Dave, I see that uh, your first book, The Bromley Boys, is being turned into a film. So, uh, aside from the check you receive for the rights, are are you are I'll you believe eager? That when I see it. What's that? I'll believe that when I see it. <laughs> are you are you eager to see how you'll be portrayed on film, or or do you have a sense of dread about that? I was eager because they started throwing these really big names around. And I was getting quite carried away with it, but the big names are sort of getting smaller and smaller as, uh, <laughs> as people have been turning the, the role down. Uh, I'm not quite as excited as I was, but it would be great yeah. to, uh, to have the film made. I've seen the script, and it's, uh, I, I really like it. It's, uh, it's not much like the book at all, but uh, yeah, it's got the same title, so I get the royalties. Did you have? I take it then you didn't have a hand in the script at all then? Oh, not at all, no. no. Yeah. They've taken a few voiceover bits from the book, but that's it. And mm-hmm. they've added a few characters. It's good. I really, I really do like it. Dave, a number of reviewers of 32 programs compared the book to uh, Nick Hornby's book, uh, Fever Pitch. And so yeah. I, I want to ask you, first of all, what, what place does Fever Pitch have in writing about football in Britain? Uh, it, it casts a very long shadow. I think um, if I get a review that doesn't mention it, I feel very lucky. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I mean, it's a great book, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's sort of it's everywhere, and it'd be nice to get away from it. Yeah, my next question. I, was, I think I think it's twenty years old. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Not, I'm not mistaken. My next question was going to be, and I think you hinted at your answer. So, when you were writing uh, thirty-two programs, were you wary of sounding Hornby-esque in, in your writing and being compared to his his book? Yeah, I think everyone who writes a, a fan memoir is inevitably going to be influenced by Nick Hornby. He's a, he's a terrific writer, and it's a great book. So, Dave, to finish up, I'll ask if you have recommendations of other other memoirs you've read, even even Fever Pitch, whether by by fans or or players. Yeah, no, Fever Pitch is a tremendous book. As I said, there's uh, one by Charlie Connolly, who uh, <clears throat> decides to follow Licht, Liechtenstein 
he becomes obsessed with them, their football team, who are one of the world's worst. Um, that's that's a very funny book. That's one of my favourites. And uh, for the sort of biographies, I like uh, Paul Gascoigne's one, which was, I think, called Gaza, which is a very honest, surprisingly honest one, because I think after a while, football memoirs tend to sound pretty much the same. But this, this one was different. This one was really good. And I'll say to you, your your next book project doesn't deal with football, correct? It deals with uh, your memoirs as a as a uh, advertising man. So, are you also have have you written enough about football to? I think the well is dry. Yeah, <laughs> football. Yeah, I've sort of uh, told my life story twice. I think I'd be pushing my luck to try and uh, try and do it again. But I'd like to go back to it one day. I mean, I've, my publisher and I have talked about a book where I throw myself into American sports and uh, try and sort of discover them and develop a passion for them. I've been throwing that idea around. So I'm curious, as uh, living in the U.S., have you sparked any interest in in American sports, or is this something that you would have to do as an experiment for the sake of writing a book? Yeah, I think it would be an experiment. Well, I did... I drive past um, the Boston Red Sox ground, which you'll have to tell me what it's called. Uh, (laughs) Fenway Park, yes. Fenway. (laughs) And I I drove past there on the way to the airport once on on a game day. It looked really exciting, so I'd love to go to a a baseball game there one day. But that's it. I've never never sort of been to any other sporting event, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. But I will. I will. Dave Roberts recommends Charlie Connolly's 2005 book on the Liechtenstein national soccer team, titled Stamping Grounds, Exploring Liechtenstein and its World Cup Dream, published by Abacus. Paul Gascoigne's autobiography was also published in 2005 by Headline Books. And Dave Roberts' two books are 32 programs, published in 2012, and the Bromley Boys, the true story of supporting the worst football team in Britain, published in 2008. Dave's recent book fits into one of the subgenres of the fan memoir, the book about a fan and his stuff. There are several other subgenres of fan memoirs, like The Fan's Diary of a Season, or The Confession of a Dysfunctional Fan, or The Fan's On a Road Trip book, or the memoir of a female fan. John Harms has written accounts of his life as a fan of cricket, horse racing, and Australian rules football that fit into a number of these categories of fan memoirs. John is also the founder and editor of the Footy Almanac, a site where supporters of Aussie rules football and all Australian sports post vignettes about an afternoon at the grounds, or reflections on lives spent following a team. In our interview, John talks about starting the Footy Almanac as a space and a community for fan writing. But to start, I asked John about his book titled Loose Men Everywhere, which fits into the category of the How I Became a Fan memoir. Some ways, Bruce, I set out to justify this ridiculous childlike passion I still had at the age of 35. I, mean, I was thinking either I haven't grown up or there is something in this game of Australian rules football or in sport generally 
which is meaningful enough for me to continue to pursue my my interest in it and for it to hold my attention. Because my view is that if something lacks meaning, if something is so trivial, I think you'll tire of it. And I just haven't tired of, of football or sport or, or, the, or those sort of pastimes, uh, which then begs the question, well, why have I found it so meaningful? So that book then was to look back into my life in football and it starts with, I can't remember life without football. You know, there is no memory of, of an, such an early time of my life. Football was always there in our household. My father, uh, who's a Lutheran clergyman who passed away three years ago, he, he loved football, loved the Geelong Football Club. The rhythm of his week was, was surrounded the church, but it also surrounded football because on Saturday afternoon we'd be listening on the radio and then watching the replay, and this is in the late 60s that night. And off we'd go to church the next morning, and uh, church was at 11 o'clock, and, and World of Sport, which was the football review program, came on TV at 12, so every, every Sunday we'd say to Dad, make sure your sermon is short, Dad, because otherwise we're going to miss the start of World of Sport. And he'd come home and, you know, so it's the way that all of these family memories are tied up with football as well. And that I then went looking for what are the common themes there? Why should there be such such a relationship, such a powerful resonance feeling um, in and around footy? And I, and I see it in, my, in this generation. My brothers and I are now in our 40s and I'm 51, and we've got kids and we're seeing the same thing happening with our kids as well. So I look for those themes, and, and I suppose the key theme was the whole idea of hope that fans have, that people have. And I want to ask about that, because one twist you have is that you talk about hope, you talk about faith, and, and as you mentioned, your father was a, a Lutheran minister, and you come from actually a long line of, of missionaries and ministers in your family. And in your book, you play upon this this notion of faith and and connecting it to the attachments of a fan. So, can you talk about that? Yeah, I think you you have loyalty, and you certainly have faith. And you, I'm someone who grew up. I'm culturally still very Christian and very Lutheran, even though my philosophical uh, positions and theological positions have moved away from those very simple um, textbook catechism um, understandings. You know, I understand the complications of language and of being, and all, all, so I'm very, dare I say, a little bit uh, more sophisticated than those Sunday school explanations that I that I, I loved at, at that time of my life. So, like, like with with any faith, you, you waver in your faith. You wonder. Gee, we were Geelong Football Club, and it's interesting. Geelong won the Premiership in 1963, and I was born in 1962, and they were always a terrific side for the many years thereafter in in the Victorian Football League competition. They always played very attractive football. They always played in their song. They say as it should be played. They played a, a cavalier attacking brand of football. They always loved the game and loved the club. Uh, but they could never win it, and they went for 44 years without winning a premiership. And those of us sort of started to think, will Geelong ever win the flag? Will we just be waiting and waiting? Is it something that I've done? Is there something wrong with me? Am I the cause of it? And so you then get this particular understanding that 
Well, football is such a crazy, chaotic game. For those of your listeners who know the game, it's an oval-shaped ball. The ball is in is being contested the whole time. It can be blown in the wind. It bounces awkwardly off the ground. It's maybe the gods dictate. These footy gods dictate what happens. So until such stage as the gods choose us, we are going to feel unchosen. So that begs the question, why do I feel, what have I done to be unchosen? So you get all these crazy um, Geelong understandings of the world. And uh, then, of course, in 2007, Geelong won the grand final brilliantly and they've, they've been one of the most powerful sides of the last six years. So it's, it's intriguing to see how that then alters your state of mind. You become more confident, more satisfied, more, more at peace. Bruce in your life once your footy club wins the premiership. I want to ask you, knowing that you're a, a student of history, when you reflect on and write about your personal experiences as, as a fan, uh, to what extent do you link that individual perspective to, to a broader context? I think that's a key part of the sort of sports writing that I'm interested in. I'm, I'm not interested in the politics of the board or who's earning what money or um, all of the or who's got who's got a torn hamstring and who's got a broken finger and and what are the politics of the of the dressing room you know that those things are all of interest but so I shouldn't say I'm not interested in it. I mean they're there but for me that that's not the central element of it I love the game uh, and I love um, that people play the game, and I love that the game exists not in isolation but in a broader social context. So what is it in cricket or in football? How, how did it develop? Why did it develop? In, in what ways was it an expression of the thinking of the moment, the ideology of the moment, um, that, 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 that time in Australia's history? And there are so many elements to that which make the, the possibilities in sports writing enormous because in a way it's a lens into your broader community and I think you know I'm a great fan of the of American sports writing and indeed of American writers Steinbeck is one of my my favorite writers um, John Irving is another uh, a favorite writer of mine of, of many but I think those collections of great American sports writing which are very popular I might add here in Australia they, they do well in the bookshops here you get such variety and you get that really um, uh, deep profiling of, of the people who are involved, but also a really powerful sense of why this is important in American culture or why this moment was significant and beautifully described, beautifully analysed and beautifully contextualised. And so we sit here in Australia, um, you know, reading the sports writing from around the world and saying, you know, we're a little bit behind here in some ways because so much of our, our writing in the middle part of last century through to the 60s and 70s was actually very basic reporting. So we look over to what's gone on, you know, with your great writers in the States and say, yeah, that's what we like to read. Well, we better get off our bums and actually try and write some of that stuff, you know. So there's great opportunity um, for people in Australia to, for, or aspiring writers or, or professional writers now, to find those wonderful top topics that we have and, and to really write about them with some some depth. 
And I'll follow up on that to, to ask about the work you've done in encouraging aspiring writers as, as the editor of the Footy Almanac. And uh, something that's striking to me about the Footy Almanac is that, that even though its purpose is to offer a chronicle of, of every game of the AFL season written, written by fans, it seems that many of the pieces on the site are less about the games themselves and, and more about the fans' reflections on being a fan. And, and so I'll ask, was this your aim in launching the site, or is this just something that's happened? Well, I don't want to rewrite history um, six years after we, I started out, but I must say that I, there was an element of planning in it, and... But I suppose it started like this, and that was newspapers are on the decline in Australia, certainly the, 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 the commonly the way that we read them as kids, you know, where the paper landed in the front yard and you had it, you're eating your, your cornflakes whilst reading the sports section of the newspaper by, you know, half past seven in the morning. So they're also in decline for writers and especially freelance writers because the report, the day-to-day reporters don't now, given budgetary constraints, have opportunity to go and spend two weeks, uh, say, researching Adam Scott's early life, for example, Adam Scott being a terrific Australian golfer at the, at the moment, or Jason Day, another golfer. So you're less likely to get the quality features in the day-to-day press. And equally with magazines, just again, so the platforms for this sort of writing that I admire from Britain and America and and generally, because we don't have the the market of the size of those two, certainly of the states, um, we don't have the platforms and the opportunities. So I thought, well, if we, one, I want to get fans writing from a fan's perspective, but two, I want to give writers an opportunity if they do have a terrific yarn to know that they don't have to bang on the door of an editor and try and convince them to give them 2,500 words when the editor just wants 600 and with a little photo, you know. So here's opportunity for that, those feature sort of pieces, and here's opportunity for day-to-day reflections. And so it was to be a platform. Now, we did that by starting out by publishing this book, this, this game-by-game account of the season, written by many writers. But I always thought that a website would emerge out of it, and it happened much more quickly than I thought uh, because the books were pretty popular from the outset and people sitting at home, men and women and kids, a lot of kids said, um, gee, I reckon I can write like that. I wouldn't mind having a crack at that. And so we could only fit about 200 articles in the book because there's 200 games. What do we do with all of the writers who still want to write but we can't fit into the book? Well, we'll create this website which allows, which, which allows them to publish whatever they like you know it's we don't really edit it we don't censor it we just let it stand and we let people respond to it and and what it's also done bruce is it's created this sort of very welcoming community Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because people don't feel that there are agendas and reasons behind the writing of the pieces other than the to write the piece itself. So there's no club pushing a line, there's no league, there's no sponsor, there's no media outlet 
who are, I mean, I don't know what it's like in the States, but we, we don't really have independent media insofar as sport is concerned now because they are stakeholders in the promotion of the games mm-hmm. because so much of their income is derived out of elevating the status of a, of a particular game. So this, this hopefully is free-spirited writing where you can write what you like more likely to get genuine critique uh, in a piece on our site than you are in a, a mainstream organisation's um, uh, newspaper where they're a sponsor of one of the clubs or, you know, mm-hmm. where, where, where there's complications. So it's an opportunity to be free in what you write. So, John, I'll ask you what, what your favorite stories are. Do you have any memoirs that uh, you've read that you'd recommend, whether a book or, or even a piece from the Almanac that stands out to you? Just here's a book that influenced me, Bruce. It was um, uh, in my mid-20s when I was playing a lot of sport and reading quite a lot of sport and nuts on sport and sports writing. I read a book called The Greatest Game, which was a collection by an Australian historian called Ross Fitzgerald and his colleague Ken Spillman uh, of about 400 pages of essays written by Australian writers, artists, historians and other academics, um, uh, some journalists. But they wrote pieces in and around the game which were so fascinating for me and they so captured what I thought was the essence of the game I thought wow not only is it great to watch good football or football but it's great to read terrific writing about football and I then went in pursuit of some of the names who were who had contributed there and found what else they'd written and just thought, yeah, you are really capturing something here. You are really making me nod my head and go, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I agree with that so much. That, and, and generating an emotional response too, like feeling, yeah, that's it. Um, so, look, that book is interestingly being re-released um, this year, The Greatest Game 25 Years On. Most of the essays are the same, but the... The editors, who are the same two editors, have invited some newbies to come along, and, and um, I'm absolutely honoured to be um, invited to have been part of that. So a book that's influenced me, uh, I now wind up with a, <laughs> with a, with a piece in, uh, an essay in. John Harm's recommended book is the compilation of short essays and autobiographical sketches titled The Greatest Game, edited by Ross Fitzgerald, and Ken Spillman. First published in 1988, a new edition of the book was published in 2013 with the title Australia's Game by Slattery Media Group. All three of John's own memoirs about his life as a fan of Australian rules football, cricket, and horse racing are available in an omnibus edition titled Play On, published in 2003 by text publishers in Melbourne. And of course, you can find the shorter writings of John and other fans of Aussie sport at the Footy Almanac, footyalmanac.com.au. For this episode, I asked people who write about sport in different parts of the world to give a brief summary of their favorite autobiographical book, whether by a fan, an athlete, or a fellow writer. We'll hear first from Teddy Jamison 
who appeared on the podcast last year to talk about his own memoir of growing up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, which he mixed with a history of sport in that region, set against the backdrop of sectarian violence. Teddy's book, Whose Side Are You On?, is available from Yellow Jersey Press, and you can find our interview in the New Books and Sports Archive. Hello there, my name is Teddy Jameson. Uh, I'm the author of Whose Side Are You On? about sport and the troubles in Northern Ireland. I'm also a journalist in Glasgow in Scotland. And uh, the two books I'm going to talk about are Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch and Jason Cowley's The Last Game. Um, they're both football books, soccer books, and what they, all, they also have in common is, of course, they're both fans' books. They're from a, a perspective of a fan. Um, Hornby's is the more famous one, I guess. Uh, it came out in 1992, so it's just over 20 years old. And um, at the time I was, when I read it, I was working in a bookshop in uh, Scotland. I was buying books, and the, the publisher's rep said to me, oh, here, here you go, here's a good football book. Now, at that time, there were no good soccer books. They, they didn't exist, so I was very sceptical. So I was a bit reluctant to read it, but when I did, I was, uh, there was a shock of recognition about it because it, it, it acts absolutely captured what it's like to be a fan, um, the, kind of, the way in which your allegiance to a football club and to the game itself shapes you and, and kind of takes over your thought patterns, takes over everything, you know, you become obsessive. Uh, no, uh, he writes in the book about um, how he worries about what's, what's the best time of the year to die, you know, is it better to die at the beginning of the season uh, or in the middle of the season, at the end of the season uh, what, 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 what are you going to feel best about and I realised I'd been thinking that myself that very thought for, for years and years yeah, that's exactly how I thought oh, is it better to die at the start of the season when you haven't had the worst of the news yet in the middle of the season when you realise you're not going to win anything or at the end of the season when you're kind of vaguely hopeful that maybe next season will be the season your team is going to win things um, the other striking thing about it is it's, it's a book about written by an Arsenal fan and uh, I am a Spurs fan, and they're the, the kind of local rivals in North London. Um, it's 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 amazing that even though that rivalry's there, it never stopped me liking the book, and never stopped me liking what I think Hornby does in the book, which is just to kind of capture um, the sense of being a fan. Jason Cowley's book, The Last Game, is actually very similar in many ways. Uh, it's all, he's also an Arsenal fan, and he's also talking about the same time in British football, or English football particularly, in that time in the kind of late 80s, early 90s. Um, his book is based around uh, the last game of the season in 1989, when Arsenal beat Liverpool at Anfield in Liverpool uh, to win the championship that year. Um, but that is only a few weeks after the Hillsborough disaster. And both Hornby and um, Cowley are really kind of the, the book pivots around Hillsborough, I think. This terrible, terrible tragedy in which 96 people died. Um, and both books, I guess, also tell us a lot about kind of uh, British kind of social history in lots of ways. One of the things I love about the, the Cowley book is it's, it's all about Liverpool in the 1980s, it's all about England in the 1980s and Britain as more generally. Um, all these things that I grew up experiencing, um, whether it be the football, whether it be music, pop music, whether it be Margaret Thatcher's government, all of these things are addressed. And reading them now, I mean, the Cowley book came out in 2009, so it's a much more recent book, but both of them are looking back to, to a time when football you could argue it was broken in Britain. Through the 70s and 80s, hooliganism was a big problem. Um, the stadiums were crumbling. There were lots of problems with football. And uh, the authorities really treated fans as kind of uh, 
less than human in many ways. And that culminated tragically in Hillsborough. And, and in a sense, both books are kind of, in a sense, I guess, a reclamation of the notion that you can be a human being and a farm at the same time. These things are uh, possible. And that's really kind of why I like both books, um, because both of them speak to the love of the sport, but also speak to the love of humanity, I guess. Hey, I'm Patrick Ruby. I'm a writer with Sports on Earth, also with sometimes Georgetown University professor of journalism. And you can also find my work at places like The Atlantic Online, ESPN.com, Washingtonian Magazine, uh, any reputable website, actually, and the ones that are paying are better. Um, so I don't actually have a favorite sports memoir. There are some good ones out there. Uh, Ball Four is a classic by Jim Bouton. Uh, Andre Agassi's memoir, Open, uh, is surprisingly good. Of course, it probably helps that I was written, uh, co-written by a Pulitzer Prize winner and J.R. Moringer. Uh, but, but for the most part, I find athlete memoirs to be pretty dull. In fact, remarkably dull. Much, much duller than what most athletes do on the field of play. And for that reason, my favorite work in this genre isn't a memoir at all. It's actually a review of a memoir. Uh, David Foster Wallace had a great piece. It's called How Tracy Austin Broke My Heart. And he reviews Tracy Austin's memoir, Beyond Center Court. Now, if you're not familiar with Tracy Austin, she was a teen tennis prodigy. She won a number of tournaments. She was basically awesome at the age of 14. And by the time she was in her early 20s, you know, injuries and bad luck had basically derailed her career. The memoir is not particularly interesting. Here's a couple of choice quotes, and these are courtesy of uh, Wallace's review. Tracy Austin on the psychic rigors of pro competition. Every pro athlete has to be so fine-tuned mentally. Tracy Austin on her parents. My mother and father never, ever pushed me. Tracy Austin on Billie Jean King. She is incredibly charming and accommodating. Tracy Austin on excellence, athletic excellence. This is what, why she has a book in the first place. There's that little bit extra that some of us are willing to give and some of us aren't. Why is that? I think it's the challenge to be the best. So basically, this is really vapid, right? It's not interesting. It's really hard to slog through this for 200 pages. And a lot of what, you know, athlete memoirs are like this. They're either really vapid or they're just sort of like jockey, locker roomy, ha-ha stuff. Uh, they're not really that reflective. There's not a lot of insight. For me as a reader, I get maybe 20, 30 pages in, and I wonder, why am I spending my time reading this? I would much rather watch this person play their sport. And I think that's kind of the point. That's something that is actually related. It's almost like two sides of the same coin. And again, I'm no David Foster Wallace, and he actually articulates this much better than I could. He, he talks about why do we keep picking up these books when they're not very good? And he apparently was really into these kinds of books. Um, and he talks about how we find these athletes compelling because of what they do, because of how beautiful they are when they do it, how we as the audience want to understand the performance we're seeing. We want to be in touch with it somehow. We want these athletes to explain to us, how do they do what they do? How does it feel? You know, share your genius with us. And the athletes, time and time again, they share it in the most trite, straightforward superficial ways. 
you know, those of us who are writers, especially writers about sports, we spend hours and hours and hours deconstructing these performances. We're the ones adding all this meaning to it. We're the ones talking about how transcendent they can be. We're the ones searching for just the right phrase, just the right analogy, just the right word to describe, you know, a beautiful forehand that Tracy Austin hit or an incredible slam dunk from Michael Jordan. And the athletes generally don't seem to look at it that way. They don't experience it the same way. Now, this is true in these memoirs. This is true in my own experience as a sports writer talking to a lot of athletes about it. I should say many of these athletes are very thoughtful people, very interesting. You talk about other things. They have incredible life stories. But the part when they actually talk about their craft and their sport and and sort of what it means and how it feels, you know, if you're not talking about the technical details of, you know, where to place your foot and where to how to hold your wrist when you're hitting a forehand or shooting a jump shot, or you're talking about the strategy of, you know, when you want to attack the net, when do you want to run a zone defense? You know, if you move away from that part of the craft and you talk about sort of the meaning of it all, they're, like I said, they're flat. And Foster Wallace has an incredibly interesting theory about this that I think, I think is pretty dead on. And instead of trying to paraphrase it, I'm actually going to read it to you. This is what he says about the real secret behind the genius of a top athlete. It may be as esoteric and obvious and dull and profound as science itself. The real, many-veiled answer to the question of just what goes through a great player's mind as he stands at the center of a hostile crowd noise and lines up the free throw to decide the game might well be nothing at all. How do great athletes shut off the Iago-like voice of the self? How can they bypass the head and simply and superbly act? How at the critical moment can they invoke for themselves a cliché as tried as one ball at a time, got to concentrate here, and mean it, and then do it? Maybe it's because for top athletes, clichés present themselves not as trite, but simply as true. Simple imperatives that are useful or not, and if useful, to be invoked and obeyed, and that's all there is to it. I think that says a lot about sort of the mindset of a great athlete. You have to go out there. And, and, and talking to athletes myself, there's kind of like a zen to really perform it. They will talk about overthinking things. And usually when they talk about overthinking things, they're talking about a time when they failed. When they succeed, they talk about being in the zone. And that zone is that zen-like state of non-thinking, of just being, of just doing. So maybe it's unfair to expect them to sit down with a pen in front of a computer screen with a ghostwriter and produce something profound about their genius, and about their art. David Foster Wallace's essay, How Tracy Austin Broke My Heart, was first published in the Philadelphia Inquirer in 1994. It has been reprinted in the 2005 collection, Consider the Lobster and Other Essays. Teddy Jameson recommends two memoirs by fans of English football. Nick Hornby's first book, Fever Pitch was published in 1992. It was re-released in 2012 as part of the Penguin Modern Classic series. And Jason Cowley's account of the 1989 Arsenal-Liverpool match is titled The Last Game, Love, Death, and Football. It was published by Simon & Schuster in 2009. Patrick Ruby was correct in saying that the autobiographies of athletes can make for tedious reading, as they are often filled with stock scenes 
and trite cliches. But is it possible that the familiar lines in athlete memoirs can be viewed as something like a literary pattern? And if so, can we look at these characteristic patterns, like those of other areas of literature, and perhaps gain some insight into how athletes understand themselves, their abilities, and their careers? Literary scholar James Pipkin asked these questions in his study, Sporting Lives, Metaphor and Myth in American Sports Autobiographies. A professor of English at the University of Houston, Jim turned his expertise as a scholar of 19th century romantic literature to the writings of 20th century American athletes. He found that, just as there are characteristic devices and themes in English romantic poetry, so are there distinctive elements to American sports memoirs. To start our interview, I asked Jim what prompted him to move from the study of Wordsworth to the books of Babe Ruth, Billie Jean King, and Dennis Rodman. I have always been a sports fan, and I was thinking about my next major project, and I became very interested in using autobiography as a way of writing about sports. Uh, in romantic poetry, uh, William Wordsworth, in trying to explain this new poetry, talked about really the subjective. He, he writes in, in the preface, it's feeling that gives importance to action rather than action that gives importance to feeling. And that seemed to me an interesting way to think about a subject that had not been explored before by academics, which is the subjective experience of sports, how the athletes themselves conceptualize uh, their experiences. So you did see then similarities between these memoirs and, and uh, British romantic literature that you've been studying. Yes, I did. Uh, in particular, uh, the Romantics really invented the cultural construction of, of childhood. Uh, before the, the Romantic era, people thought of children as just miniature people. But the Romantics argued that children experienced the world differently. Uh, Wordsworth wrote, the child is the father of the man. And in the book, one of the ways in which I conceptualize my reading of these books is that the athlete often sees himself as, an, as a kind of eternal child, a kind of Peter Pan who dwells in uh, the echoing green. They have the ability to keep alive in many ways that sense of vitality, spontaneity, and, and really a physical form of imagination that most of us lose uh, later on. As, as Bill Bradley puts it in, in his autobiography, Life on the Run, the athlete keeps alive something, quote, before the mind hardens. But are there negative sides to this extended childhood? And I think of particularly with the uh, uh, the biography, the recent biography of Mickey Mantle with its subtitle, the, the Last Boy, and this idea that he never really grew up. He never became an adult. Do you see that? Do athletes admit that in their autobiographies? 
Yes, they do. And in fact, uh, I write about the eternal child not only as Peter Pan, but the dark side of that is that uh, the athlete is also in many ways like Peter Pan's companions, the Lost Boys. Uh, they've lived in an enclosed world. That's also another dimension of the echoing green. It's an enclosed garden. And they're unprepared for the larger life when their career's in. So you write about as well, Jim, how athletes understand their bodies. And uh, in their autobiographies, how did athletes express this, this knowledge that they gained of their bodies? Well, they have different ways of conceptualizing that. Uh, I think the most important thing and the most unique thing is that they see to a much larger degree than most people do that the body is an important site of identity. Their, their lives are uh, entwined with the body as a way of, of performing. At the same time, they also see the body as other. They see it as an instrument, or in other instances, they see it as a machine. I, I think most importantly, though, uh, what I focus on in my study of the body is what Malcolm Gladwell, the author of a Blink, calls physical genius, although the way in which I approach it is through the Greek philosophic concept of the daimonic. Uh, the daimonic, which we often associate with uh, Socrates and the spirit, the voice he heard, uh, it's a spirit that expresses itself in artistic creativity, in sexuality, in dreams, and I argue that it also expresses itself in the case of the athlete in his body. Uh, we're familiar with athletes' uh, techniques of visualization. They, they talk about visualizing the feat before they perform it, and so what they do is take a vision in their mind, and they make it palpable through the body. And so that's physical genius. Uh, that's a different form of imagination. Jim, you finish your book with a, with a case study of one athlete who, who wrote four autobiographies. And yes. uh, so what did you find in studying the, the many memoirs of Dennis Rodman? Well, with, with Dennis Rodman, uh, what I found most interesting is the way that we see in uh, his autobiographies uh, really interesting examples of our celebrity culture, uh, the athlete as celebrity. Uh, we know from scholarship that beginning in the 1920s and 1930s, actors and athletes replaced statesmen and businessmen as popular heroes and popular idols. And this is only in uh, increased with the role of the, the glaring eye of the media on sports now with 24-hour sports programming. And so Rodman is a good example of the postmodern celebrity, whom I also call a vulgar dandy. <laughs> and so what would, what would make him uh, 
how would you characterize him as postmodern? I know that that's a slippery term, but uh, uh, what distinguishes him as a postmodern celebrity, say, if, you know, compared to somebody like a, uh, a Bill Bradley or a Mickey Mantle? Well, Bill Bradley and Mickey Mantle, the public image they had was what Dennis Rodman would call poster boys. In fact, Bill Bradley talks about the straitjacket that he felt when, particularly when he was at Princeton, he was lionized as the the, the Christian scholar athlete. Rodman, on the other hand, is all about excess. Uh, he is a great example of Oscar Wilde's uh, statement that nothing succeeds like excess. Uh, he is the poser. He is the performer. Uh, style is everything to him. And I, I think that's one way of beginning to understand the distinction between uh, the contemporary athlete as celebrity and what we think of as the older sports heroes and role models. And yet Rodman built his reputation as an athlete on on being the most workmanlike of athletes. Being... Well, this again comes back to my thesis about the Janus world of sport. Uh, Rodman is a walking contradiction. Uh, he calls himself a blue-collar worker. He's a lunch pail worker who does the ugly but necessary job of rebounding. He's not the prolific scorer. He's not the fancy dribbler. And so he presents that image of himself on the one hand, but on the other hand, he builds himself as, quote, the Madonna of the NBA. So, Jim, as you know, the editors of anthologies and textbooks feature uh, selected works of 19th century British literature as, as, as key texts that students should be familiar with. So if you were editing the, the anthology of 20th century American sports autobiography, which, which athletes' writings would you start with as, as representative works? I think probably the most valuable anthology would be one that organized the autobiographies chronologically as sort of case studies that allowed us to understand the social history of America through sports. And so you might begin with uh, the autobiographies of pre-World War I athletes such as Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth move to a Depression-era athlete such as Jake LaMotta's Raging Bull, uh, Jackie Robinson's I Never Had It Made uh, to Study the 1940s, the beginnings of the Civil Rights Movement. And then for the, the crucial 1960s, 1970s counterculture movement, uh, Dave Megacy's football autobiography, Out of Their League, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's Giant Steps, uh, Linda Huey, a, a track star, her her autobiography, uh, A Running Start, and Billie Jean King's uh, Billie Jean or Navratilova's uh, Martina, and perhaps then in with Dennis Rodman. So in, in looking at these various memoirs as a researcher, were there any books that you really enjoyed in terms of uh, it, it just give you pleasure as a reader? Yes. The, the autobiographies that I value the most uh, 
before and three, not surprisingly, are written by athletes that the general public has, has never heard of. I think the best baseball uh, memoir is Pat Jordan's A False Spring. Uh, Jordan is a very successful freelance writer. Uh, he writes for Esquire, Sports Illustrated. But in a false spring, he confesses that he still feels like a former athlete who happens to write rather than like a writer uh, who was once a ball player. Uh, the second autobiography that I really enjoyed is Michael Oriard's The End of Autumn. Uh, Michael was the first walk-on uh, player at Notre Dame to be elected uh, captain after a short playing career with the Kansas City Chiefs and a, a, a team in Canada. He got a Ph.D. in English at Stanford, and his football autobiography, The End of Autumn, is, is a very thoughtful study of, of sport. Probably the, the single best autobiography that I've read is Bill Russell's Second Wind, and the, the subtitle is, is very telling. Uh, the subtitle is Memoirs of an Opinionated Man, and rather than being a life story, it's really a series of essays, some about childhood, some about sexuality, uh, others about magic, the, the transcendent moment. And then the final book is by an athlete who has been in the public eye recently, marathon swinner Diana Nyad's Other Shores. Um, Nyad was a former doctoral student in comparative literature at NYU when she wrote Other Shores at, in the New York Public Library. But it's really a fascinating study, particularly the, the chapter about the kind of imaginative activity that takes place when her senses are totally blocked out because she's immersed in water, covered in uh, jelly, uh, her goggles uh, fog over, and her mind starts to, as she puts it, paint pictures on her eyelids, an experience that she compares to taking LSD. The athlete memoirs recommended by Jim Pipkin include Diana Nyad's Other Shores, published by Random House in 1978. Bill Russell's Second Wind, The Memoirs of an Opinionated Man, published in 1979, also by Random House. Pat Jordan's book, A Fall Spring, was first published in 1975. It has been re-released by Bison Books. And Michael Oriard's memoir, The End of Autumn, Reflections on My Life in Football, was first released in 1982. It was republished in 2009 by the University of Illinois Press. As Jim explained, a key theme of his research is the emergence of the athlete as a star, a celebrity, even as a brand. But what about athletes in societies where personal branding is not as prevalent as in the capitalist West, or is even disallowed? Do athletes in these sporting cultures still try to tell their stories? And if so, 
What are the themes of their memoirs? How are they different from the books by American athletes that Jim Pipkin studied? I put this question to Robert Edelman, one of the leading scholars of the history of Soviet sport. For his most recent book, The Award-Winning History of the Soccer Club Spartak Moscow, Bob researched the memoirs of fans, players, and club officials, particularly those of Nikolai Starostin, who founded the club, and his brothers, who all played for Spartak. For those of us who grew up during the Cold War, the idea of Soviet athletes writing their memoirs is perhaps surprising. The image of Soviet sport in the West was that of a state-run machine working to win prestige for this communist system. For many people who held that view of Soviet sports, myself included, it was hard to imagine individual athletes in the Soviet Union writing about their own lives. So to begin our interview, I asked Bob, what did athletes write about themselves in the years of Soviet rule? I suppose the question, which is always true, true when you're talking about athletes' memoirs, is did they write them? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, in one case I can think of, in case, in fact, of the Staristans, we actually know that there was a, a not a ghostwriter, but, you know, a co-author. Uh, and then in uh, the case of another one of the Staristan brothers, Andre, uh, he is said to have written uh, them all by himself, and he had written some novels and other forms of literature. He was friends with a bunch of well-known writers as well. So it was a very uh, well-developed genre. And, uh, you know, it, it is as in the case with uh, memoirs in general, some are better than others. And, uh, you know, probably the best are by a guy named Nikita Simonyan, who wrote a post-Soviet biography of his life, autobiography of his life uh, under Soviet uh, soccer communism, if you want to call it that. So it's it's a very much a tradition. Uh, it's also part of creating heroes, and he creating heroes was definitely part of Soviet reality, especially going back to the 1930s and the campaigns that were called socialist emulation. They wanted role models for people to uh, ed that is literally emulate, and so uh, it's a big deal. And so, what were the themes of these of these books in terms of of building up heroes, or or the ones that were actually written by the athletes themselves? That's a good question. Um, you know, they tend tend to be. Um, I was always interested in sports from an early time. I was discovered by a coach or a scout at some point who was looking at youth competitions. I was then invited to be at such and such sports club if, if, or if you were 18 you would be uh, invited into the army uh, maybe not exactly invited and um, you know there are ups and downs and there are struggles and sometimes uh, victories and sometimes defeat but always in the long run some kind of peace and happy ending with uh, their careers so there's a kind of uh, as you would say uh, you know a conformity to a particular genre of, of memoirs so once again, thinking of the, the Western image of Soviet mm. sports, were these, uh, when you read them now, do, do you see them simply as, as works of propaganda for the state? Some yes and some no. Um, 
which is, I think, to be expected. You know, I think we're more, I'm more interested in the ones that don't fill that particular stereotype. And I think you would also find that this tracks with the way that academics who study uh, the Soviet Union or Soviet history now also feel about the totalitarian model. It really does not have much traction anymore among those who actually do things like go to archives and try to uncover very specific things. Uh, that particular model doesn't explain very much. doesn't mean the place was wonderful. It was highly you know, authoritarian. It was a police state. But what I've tried to talk about, and you can get, depending on the memoir, is that there was a degree of autonomy uh, that the athletes had, that the coaches had, that journalists had. It wasn't simply, uh, you know, a kind of fulfilling of a plan that was enunciated from on top. So, Bob, you already mentioned the uh, uh, Starotsin brothers uh, who feature in your, your more recent work on the soccer club Spartak Moscow. Uh, and, and you said they, they wrote together, what, something like six or seven different memoirs? They were quite prolific. Yeah, seven memoirs. And, and taken collectively... They really definitely represent the family romance of, of Spartak. And, uh, you know, as in any case, uh, as generally is the case with memoirs, they're very self-serving. There are all kinds of mistakes. There are things that probably were concocted that didn't happen, and I'd be happy to enumerate some of them. I was going to ask, why did, they, why did they write so much? And you, you uh, interviewed... Uh, was it Nikolai that you interviewed then? I interviewed Nikolai for the first book, for yeah, Sirius yeah. Book, which came out in 93. And uh, he was 92 at the time, right? Yeah. And I had, I had done some preparation, but I didn't know what I came to know by the time I was writing Spartak. By that time, he, he died in 96. But he was quite amazing. Um, I think he got one minor detail wrong in an hour interview. Wow. Uh, you know, he was very energetic. Um, these guys were very smart, and they traveled in a somewhat, maybe I would call middle-brow to high-brow world of writers and intellectuals. Spartak was always seen as the team of the intelligentsia, although those are very kind of amorphous concepts. Uh, there's not, you know, one one intelligentsia. But they saw themselves as part of a kind of uh, cultural elite, they, tra they knew people from the theater. Uh, and uh, Andre, who is the second oldest, Nikolai was the oldest, had a number of friends. His best friend was uh, Mikhail Yanshin, who was an actor in the Moscow Art Theater. And he was friends, actually, with Mayakovsky very early on, the poet, and uh, Alexander Fadeev, the writer, Al Al uh, Yuri Alyesha, also writers. And I think they had a lot to do with encouraging him to write memoirs. And he wrote other works of art as well. He did novels and quite a bit of very good journalism. I'll ask you about something that, that comes out in, in both of your books uh, about Spartak, is uh, their experience, the brothers' experiences with Beria. And this is something that, that uh, was it Nikolai wrote about this in his memoirs, correct? <laughs> yeah, and a lot of it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about memoirs, these are not necessarily artifacts that tell you something called the truth, mm -hmm. Uh, but they are uh, interesting in and of themselves as uh, something that expresses something about the sort of the culture or the history and those stories. But it doesn't mean that they're the truth. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, your your project is, in fact, interesting because 
10 or 15 years ago, we wouldn't be having this conversation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because there has been a rehabilitation, you know, of the memoir as a source that historians would be taking seriously. I come from a kind of, you know, more sociological, social history uh, background before I got into sports history and, you know, I wasn't really doing cultural history and we disdain the memoir, right? Mm -hmm. You know, hey, they make stuff up, you know, so it, it's no good, right? Well, now we want to know what they were thinking and even if the thinking itself isn't necessarily something that uh, to use a perhaps hacking term, actually occurred. Uh, so, you know, we're in a postmodern world, and a memoir becomes a kind of uh, perfect postmodern source. Bob, your research has also looked into uh, fan culture in, in the Soviet Union. And was there such a thing as the fan memoir in the Soviet Union? Oh, yeah, very definitely. Uh, usually what it is is it's a journalist who has uh, perhaps the best known of these is Lev Filatov, who's kind of the dean of Soviet sports writers, and he's written a number of books about his experiences as a fan, especially as a young fan. And uh, this is quite quite common, and it's been very helpful to me because finding out what the fans thought was the hardest part of all this. You know, you can go into an archive, you can read the records of the sports ministry equivalent, you can read uh, reports in the, to and within the Central Committee, uh, you can get a lot of the you know, sort of officials and semi-official histories of the game uh, from, again, books that are largely published by historical journalists. But getting the point of view of the fan in a repressive, you know, censored culture where that interplay, say, between journalists and fans and athletes and officials is much more controlled was very, very difficult. I'm still not really entirely happy with it. You're making a lot of educated guesses. And one of the things I wound up doing, probably more in the Spartak book because I had better information, was that you can actually tell a lot from attendance figures. Mm-hmm. And those are not fake. There's no reason for them to fake them. And, uh, you know, they represent thousands and thousands of individual micro choices about to go or not to go. And, uh, you know, the idea that Spartak was averaging 53,000 fans, you know, a home game in the 1930s is a pretty interesting finding. And then when you compare it to other teams, you can say something about where fan loyalties tend to be. Uh, so the fan part, you know, because they weren't utterly free to express themselves as it was the difficult part to come up with. And some really good work is now being done by younger scholars, especially in Germany, who are trying to uh, investigate and excavate this uh, phenomenon of the fan. So you mentioned at, at the start of the interview uh, the memoir written by a, uh, a Russian athlete in the post-Soviet period. And I want to ask you, in, in the last two decades, what have you... Uh, what changes have you noticed in terms of how Russian athletes and Russian fans write about themselves and their experiences? Oh, it's enormous. I mean, there's uh, the one that I had mentioned, Nikita Simonyan. Nikita Simonyan was the first non-Slavic uh, player to play for a Moscow club. And he's kind of, he's an Armenian. Uh, and he played for Spartak Moscow starting in the 1940s. He eventually, in fact, for a long time, was the held a record for most goals in a season. 
He was a star of the national team. He was a captain of the national team. He was captain of Spartak and later was the, the coach of Spartak. And this was a guy whose father got arrested and whose uh, himself was invited to discuss football matters with local KGB and all in the you know the effort of trying to make him transfers from Spartak to the secret police teams. And you know there was nothing of that in the, the work that he did or others did about the. Uh, in the pre in the Soviet period, and there's a great deal of it subsequently. So you know it's very useful and helpful to the historian, needless to say. Mm-hmm. Bob, you've been writing sports history for a long time. So to uh, finish up, I'll ask uh, if you have any recommendations of, of favorite memoirs. So whether an English language book from from Russia or a book from some other part of the world that uh, uh, you've just enjoyed reading. Okay, I think my favorite memoir for sports is actually not about soccer but in fact about cricket specifically cricket in trinidad and the west indies and that's beyond the boundary by clr james who was a black revolutionary a shakespeare scholar a fine cricket player himself a sports writer and all-around interesting person that's in 1963 and at that point he makes a plea to other thinking intellectuals to take sports seriously And then the other one that I don't remember with great detail, but I do remember liking a lot, was Sadaharu O's uh, memoir about, uh, you know, the great Japanese Mm. baseball player and home run hitter. Uh, That was ghostwritten, I think, with uh, David Falk was the co-writer of that, and it's a very interesting, very good book. Bob Edelman's suggestions for sports memoirs are Sadaharu O's autobiography, A Zen Way of Baseball co-written with David Falk and published in 1984 by Times Books. And the classic memoir of C.L.R. James, Beyond a Boundary, was first published in 1963. The book is now available in the UK from Yellow Jersey Press, and here in the U.S., a new 50th anniversary edition has just been released by Duke University Press. My name is... uh... Daryl Leeworthy. I work at the uh, University of Huddersfield in West Yorkshire. I've uh, recently taken up the post of um, lecturing community history, which means that I focus on uh, ordinary people's lives and what ordinary people were doing with their leisure time, with their work, with their um, social activities and politics and um, things of that sort. Um, and that's kind of encapsulated in the book that I want to talk to you about today, which is um, History is What You Live, by the relatively unknown Welsh author called Ron Berry. Um, he grew up in the Rhondda, um in South Wales. He was born in 1920 and died in 1997. And the autobiography of his is slightly poignant in that it came out just a few months after his passing, but it tells you a lot about his life. He was a boxer and out on the amateur circuit. He was a footballer. He played for Swansea Town. Um, when I say footballer, of course, I mean soccer in this context. Um, he played for Swansea Town at the end of the 1930s um, before an injury brought the end to his career. Uh, he was a cyclist. He swam. He did all of the kinds of things that you would expect a kind of active young lad to do when there's not much work about and those things are there to be done. In later life, however, he turned to writing, um, and the sport really feeds into that writing process. So a lot of his novels take on sporting metaphors. So one of his more famous novels is uh, The Full-Time Amateur, 
which of course you're right into the mind of a, of a proper sportsman there. So he's uh, he's an interesting chap. I should take some uh, snippets from the book. I, the last line for me is is the most poignant. He says, um, "Mark, for instance, the Fernhill soccer team, cup winners on Kaimauer Field, Triorki, 1937, ten along dead, destroyed by pneumoconiosis, injuries, heart attacks, and disease." The inside left who scored the winning penalty goal, he's spending words on paper. I think that leaves, when you finish, finish the autobiography, it really leaves you with a poignant sense of just how much sport brought a group of lads together, but also created the memories that linger for the rest of their lives. And you can envisage Ron sort of ticking off the team photograph and going, gone, gone, and watching time pass as it gets to him. I think that's really where his title comes to comes to life. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of it's an it's an autobiography written by an old man, um, aware that his time is running out, but but living his his younger life. Um, for me, it, it's an unusual sports autobiography in that he's not he's not a big wig. He's not a star who made it up. He's you know he's not Duncan Edwards or someone of that stature. Or Sidney Crosby when he comes to write his uh, reams of autobiography, I'm sure. Um, but he's he's an ordinary man who played sport and enjoyed sport, lived a slightly remarkable life, and just because most of his life was spent out of work, uh, and so the sport that he had filled in the gaps that were missing from the rest of the kind of life that you would expect someone to do. I can't think for me. Uh, given that I kind of grew up in the South Wales coalfield myself, I can't really think of a better autobiography that tells you as much about that society as it does about the sport. I'm Victoria Dawson, and I'm a PhD student at the International Centre for Sports History and Culture at De Montfort University in England. Um, I think one of the autobiographies that I find particularly interesting that's come out most recently has got to be Claire Balding's My Animals and Other Family. But as far as sporting biography goes, this covers Claire's first 20 years of, of her life when she was an aspiring, aspiring jockey. What's really interesting about it is that Claire manages to blend the veracity and substance of historical fact with her own inner life um, and she she manages to do this she manages to do this quite well and it's very engaging and it's humorous. Um she certainly evokes pathos at times. There are there are sections where she she comments about her grandmother always wishing that she was a boy and you know, she she sometimes she feels that she's been a bit of a disappointment to her family. And she manages to blend this in with this um device, I suppose, this technique of of building each chapter around one of her favourite animals in her life. And this sort of these animals are used as, as a hook, if you like, into sections of her story. And what that does is that allows Claire to pick sections of her personal history and go into detail about that particular time in her life and construct this, this narrative that is essentially gappy um, but doesn't seem it doesn't seem that way. Whereas, for example, um, many many autobiographies will try and give a continuous narrative history, and then at times 
in, in, in works like that, the areas that are glossed over can seem quite apparent. Whereas Claire, because she's gone for this kind of potted history, it, it, it gives this illusion of it actually having a little more flow, which I find quite interesting. There's a real, there seems to be a real honesty about Claire's book, which comes from the acknowledgement of difficult times in her life and things that, you know, perhaps are maybe, maybe slightly hard for her to write down. But obviously, as with any, any autobiography, you've, you know, you've got to sort of understand that each one is, in a way, an ideological construct and ask whose ideology is, is, is the narrative um, actually portraying. But, uh, yeah, Claire's is, is really very interesting and it's not so much about her own sporting career, but it definitely gets across what it was like to grow up in a sporting environment really very well and gives this human dimension to that sporting environment. So it's not just all about, you know, what her father achieved in his career, you know, as a royal horse trainer and, and, and training champion, but gives the gives this real sense of place and atmosphere and I think it really does that very well. Historians Daryl Leeworthy and Victoria Dawson suggest memoirs that offer very different perspectives of British sport. The book by working class Welsh writer Ron Barry is titled History is What You Live. It was published in 1998 by Gomer Press. And the memoir of Claire Balding a daughter of the upper class, who is now one of Britain's most respected sports broadcasters, is titled My Animals and Other Family. It was published in 2012 by Penguin and won last year's National Book Award for Best Biography or Autobiography. As we've heard from a few guests, there is always the question when you read an athlete's memoir as to whether the athlete actually wrote the book. Like the memoirs of politicians and other celebrities, the autobiographies of sports figures tend to be the products of collaboration with a ghostwriter. In some cases, the partnership of an athlete and professional writer can produce impressive results. Patrick Ruby mentioned Andre Agassi's book, Open, which was written with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist J.R. Moringer. But how do professional athletes and professional writers work together on a book? And what makes for a successful ghost-written memoir? To find out, I spoke to Sharda Ugra. Sharda is a senior editor for ESPN Crick Info, and she is also the co-author of two recent cricket memoirs, one by current Indian player Yuvrat Singh, and another by former New Zealand international John Wright. To begin, Sharda describes these two books and the very different ways in which their subjects collaborated with her. Uh, let me just tell you about the two sort of, uh, you know, book projects that I, that I did work on. Uh, the most recent one was uh, a book by uh, Yuvraj Singh, uh, the Indian cricketer, about his uh, just the last two, three years of his life because he, he won the World Cup for India. He was the player of the tournament. He had cancer. He went through chemotherapy. He came out of it. He played again. So uh, so that's why the book is called The Test of My Life, uh, from cancer, my journey from cancer to cricket and back. Uh, that was released this year. Uh, about five years ago, I worked with uh, uh, India's first foreign coach for its cricket team, John Wright, who was from New Zealand. 
uh, which is like a five-year, you know, sort of a five-year summation of what had happened because he had you know, a big adventure. That's what the story eventually was. So these are the these are the two main books uh, that that I worked on. I ghosted. So um, and it's been it's been quite an experience because of you know the the two characters and the two uh, sort of sto- different and varying kind of stories that they told. And they both had um, different how to say it different approaches to working with you. Correct. Absolutely. Uh, Yuvraj's book was much more sort of, uh, you know, at, at at a pretty fast pace because it had to be out in a short period of time. Uh, he uh, so came to the United States for uh, his cancer treatment in Indianapolis, uh, where the doctor who had worked with Lance Armstrong, uh, Dr. Lawrence Einhorn, sort of uh, looked after his case. Um, and he was back in about April and the book had to be out pretty soon you know it had to be out within it was out in under a year it was released by uh, in in feb and march and and similarly john wright's book was you know done in a much more it, it took a longer time i mean it seems like a longer time because it was done in a much more uh, uh, sort of a methodical manner you know and wright was more methodical as well about uh, uh, how to ar- yeah, archiving had, his life yeah he had collected an enormous amount of material, you know, he had sort of like a big black leather, leather briefcase in which he had every single paper that he had in India, you know, uh, he had written diaries of on his computer. We, we all used to joke that, you know, he was the coach who had the computer, the first Indian cricket team coach. This was in 2001, 2000, 2001, when for a coach to have a laptop was like a great scientific leap of technology and advancement. But he just sat on the computer and took notes and wrote letters. And, you know, he wasn't doing strategy on the computer in any way because that had been done the players were out in the field they were doing what they had to do so he had a, he had taken very very detailed notes about his life he because he was living in india he didn't have a house he sort of basically lived out of a suitcase in hotels uh, he kept a diary uh, he had photographs he had letters he had you know doodles he had songs he had everything and you had to sort of take that material and bring it down to something that uh, uh, that was, you know, which which kind of told the story of his experience and all the things that he wanted to say. He had he he was, you know, moved by his experience in India. Uh, he was enriched by it, I think, and and that's what sort of came through uh, in in the book. And um, Yuvraj's in that way wasn't so much about externally kind of taking notes, but just letting out whatever he he felt and he knew and he and he understood about his life at the time he did have audio notes and he had a video diary at one but one point uh, he had an audio diary and a video diary at one point but it was a much more sort of a spontaneous uh, kind of a, a almost um, a therapeutic thing for him to talk through what he had gone what, what he had been uh, and, and what the cancer had done to him Sharda, you have a recent essay in which you describe the process of ghostwriting these two me- memoirs and uh you're not very positive about the experience. You you talk about it as being somewhat somewhat grueling. Why was that? <laughs> uh, no, I mean it, uh, it's just uh, no. I, I I hope I didn't sound as un, a bit down uh, about it. It, it. it it it's a very when it happens, it's like nonstop. It's like the person lives in your head because you are trying to be his life, his voice, his emotion. You know, on the page, that's what you do, uh, and and that's what I always say. Writing is like it's like you're breaking stones. It's great when it's over, but when you're doing it, it's like you're trying to break stones with, you know, with a, with like a little hammer. Uh, so that's why it's that that's why it's grueling because it's almost like. Uh, you know, doing a PhD thesis at high speed when that's all the subject that there is there in your head. That's what happens, and uh, and it's all the time. And it's eventually you have to remember that you have to be the other person's voice. You know, your own 
individual whatever voice or style it shouldn't show you know it shouldn't be that transparent because it's the person who's who's speaking out and that's the voice you have to be so i mean i i said in in the in the article i wrote i called it like it's it's like running an ultra marathon it's like it's like you feel you're doing it forever and then at one point it's over and then it's out and it's and then you realize that yeah if you've done a good job it is that person's book and people believe that it's book and you you're just really unimportant at the end of it all so it it's 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 a good experience because i um, got along with both both the guys with whom i did the book um they're very very different people i got along with them and and as as sort of uh, you know it uh, grueling it may have been it it was good to have been a part of that you write as well that your experience in in ghosting the two books allowed you to get a uh, the the term you use a closer look at indian cricket's undercarriage and uh <laughs> And then, so this is somewhat surprising given your decades of experience in covering cricket in India. So what were some of the things that surprised you in the process of working on these, these books that, um, you, you'd not been aware of before? Um, I mean, eventually, you know, in, in, in cricket, a lot of the, a lot of the things that happen on the field, you don't, you're not told about you. Sometimes you find out, sometimes you don't, I think as, as a, uh, you never really know what a player is going through in his head. a player a coach in this case going through in his head in a tournament like say the world cup which is what yuvraj's experience was about or what what uh, i mean i i was reading when i read uh, rights diaries it was just you know it was like the world had opened up to you so the, there was stuff in there about how these are everyday people with extraordinary skills that are just sort of put into the, into what is a pressure cooker environment and how how do they deal with it and uh, one of the things you do learn is that you kind of understand also how so many things that sort of almost random acts of god if i can use that phrase you know that the, that the that the chances of uh, between victory and defeat the margins are very very slim many things are just a stroke of good fortune you just put your head down and you work as hard as you can and then hope that the you know that 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 fate moves in your way because you are playing a sport that is so um, you know, like all sport the margins of error are, are, are very little um you find out how much people go through you know because a lot of times you think that you see sportsmen who are sort of uh, particularly in cricket you, you at that point in time maybe say about 10 years ago you didn't have that much emotion showing through on on screen you know there were much less um sort of emotionally the a, a kind of a, you you didn't see them celebrating or getting disappointed so much you know like a a, a great player like tendulkar what happens to him in x situation so you found out a lot of those things uh, when you when you read that book you found out all the sort of why you know the indian team before the current world cup wasn't served its lunch before the world cup semi final going to pakistan so they literally walked on to possibly the biggest match of the tournament till that time uh, having just eaten a sandwich you know so you find out big things and you find out little things um and and it's not something you find out as a journalist because you're following so many other story kind of threads that are going at the time about larger pictures that are of interest and Uh, to the reader and so on. Um, so you you find out a lot of things about about the way the sport works and 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 how it happens and how people can be you know either astonishingly generous or astonishingly petty. You know you find stuff out like that. It's it, it's it, it's 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 a great experience. I wouldn't. Uh, I mean, I learned huge huge things from from doing these books. Sharda, you raised the question in your essay. Um, surely there lies a deeper reason why why athletes want their stories told why do you think athletes want their want to tell their stories mm, if if for example you are an athlete that's lived, that, that by nature has been 
sort of introspective and kind of uh, self-deprecating and you've had a very long and a rich experience, you do want to talk about it. You know, you do want to tell it. There is a whole sense of, yes, you know, this is something that I can put my energy into and I can make some money out of it. But I think that is the other thing is also, uh, you know, this thing of, of, of telling, which is why I think uh, John Wright did the book, you know, uh, because and he recorded things down. He had it on paper. He had them in his computer. He had things, he recorded it down and, and it had made a massive difference. It had been a very, very, uh, I won't say life-changing experience because he stayed pretty much the same, but it had been a very key um, experience in his life. And uh, he wanted to share it. He wanted people in New Zealand, firstly, to know what it was like. He said they don't understand how big Indian cricket is and what Indian cricket is. They have no, they have, they have no idea of uh, what's going on, you know. And uh, he wanted to write it. And, and similarly, I think for Yuvraj, in a way, it was almost sort of like a, a therapy. The book was almost like his friend whom he had there. He had something to talk to all the time uh, to keep it going. Uh, so it's things like that. There's all there'll always be a player who'll come out as athlete. Doesn't have to be an Indian cricket player. There'll be some athlete who'll come out and say, you know, I was great. Nobody gave me credit. This guy was, you know, horrible. He treated me badly, and it'll almost be like a vengeance. So there's there's always some some sort of emotional uh, kind of uh, stream running through the reason why why someone wants to do a book. Otherwise, why would you? You know, why would you do it? it I don't think it's only about money. I mean, some uh, the athletes have very well paid they don't really have such a bad uh, you know life it's not a tough life so I, I think a lot of it is this is this sort of um, an expression of something that they could not tell when they were in you know in their life going through the experience or um, they, they were in their career in their playing career at the time so I think that's possibly the reason that they do want to share and Sharda you recently talked about your own experiences on the podcast the cricket coach yeah, and, uh, and so given that you're something of a of a pioneer figure in in cricket journalism as one of the first women to cover cricket in the late '80s and early '90s, you have you have a compelling and I would say an important story to tell. Have you ever been tempted to write your own life story? <laughs> Not really. I'm too lazy. <laughs> um, I mean, what what I would definitely like to do at some point is to. Is I, I I also wrote a piece for Cricket for about what it was like to be a journalist before the internet. You know, I mean, I, I definitely do want to uh, write something. I don't think I don't think anyone wants to read a whole like book about my life or whatever. It's not that important or big or something like that. But maybe um, something to do with uh, what what it was like being in that time. You know, growing up in the eighties and and but like really, I don't think people have that interested in, in a life, but maybe to record it down, possibly in a longish kind of an essay, maybe I'll do it. You know, I, I think I did write something for a, uh, a very short piece for the Indian Women's Press Club, like a little magazine about what it was like being a, a journalist. And I think in a way that if uh, women who want to cover sport, if they want, if, if they need sort of any, no, I know that sounds kind of boastful and, you know, it sounds like I've got a, a life path lesson for them, five the five steps to success kind of thing. Nothing, nothing of the sort. I think I should just be quiet and, <laughs> and do my work. Well, let me pick up on something you said there and, and connect back with athletes telling their story. So you said, well, I don't want to write, write about my life. My life wasn't that big. It wasn't that important. And and you had said earlier that, that athletes are ordinary people. Have you come across an athlete who, you know, when presented with the prospect, you should, people really want to know about your life. That athlete said, no, I'm, I'm, 
I'm pretty ordinary. My, you know, people wouldn't be interested in reading no, about me. You never, you never meet an, you never meet an athlete who says people don't want to hear about my okay, life. You interesting. Know. Okay, interesting. Okay. usual because I think another. What I find really fascinating, what I would really want to try and understand, is the whole business of competitiveness. You know, how can some people be competitive and others not be? You know, I mean, athletes, all athletes. You, you don't even have to be a good athlete. Anyone who's sort of playing professional sport is just a competitor inside, and it's just the degree of your competitiveness that I think makes you successful, not successful, work hard, kind of just drop off the map in a way. I, I have a fear. I'm very interested to find out what what makes, what is it that kicks you off as a competitor. You know, I, I I was quite a wimp. I was a very bad athlete. I was really really average in anything, everything I did. I mean, I'm much fitter now than I was when I was in like a t- teenager. Um, and I hated playing. I used to play badminton. I hated playing singles. I hated it. I could not bear it. I just thought it was terrible to be on the on the court alone. You know, I love playing doubles. I love having someone at the side. Maybe someone to say that oh they played rubbish today. I played good, but still we lost because they played. I don't know what it was. I, I'm just not competitive, so that's why I find the, the the competitive side of athletes. I find it really interesting, and you will see sort of the literally the most. Yeah, like Yuvraj, for example, when he does a press conference, he'll be sort of sitting and he'll be answering questions and he'll be, you know, chatty and he'll make jokes and it depends on if he's in a good mood, he'll sort of, everything is ha-ha, everything's nice. And then someone says something to him that is, it's either, they're not trying to bait him, but they've just said something about the Indian team, which kind of talks down to them. And literally, like you see his, you see him change. And it's like his, he raises his eyebrow and he just sits up and he says, and his entire personality changes in that one minute, you know. And you, it, so this whole sort of Mr. Gum Chewing Lazy Boy just turns, you can see him become the competitor. <laughs> you, know? you can see it. It happens in front of your face. He's like, oh, God, he's off again. You know, and um, so it's the same thing. I mean, and similarly with, with John Wright, who just is a very uh, relaxed and an easygoing person. But do not push them competitively about anything because you can actually see it switch. You know, you can actually see... Uh, Samir Chopra wrote a great piece about having a conversation with uh, Rahul Dravid and this, that, and the other. And then uh, he reached a point at which he said, then he saw the guy who had scored 10,000 test runs. And he could see it, you know. It, that's the thing. I, I find it fantastic. I don't know how they do it, but you could, I don't know how it happens, but you just see it when they win two athletes. I, I find that an exceptional. I mean, I'm really, really curious about that. I really want to know what makes them that way. What What is it that takes them there? Well, Sharda, do you, other than your own books, uh, do you have other cricketing memoirs that you'd recommend? Actually, I quite follow cricket fiction. I know you're saying it's a memoir and it's not technically part of the podcast. I, I read as much cricket fiction as I can. And if I can plug, can I plug someone's book? Sure. He's not a friend of mine. I don't know him. Yeah, uh, it's a book called Chinaman, mm-hmm. which is written by a Sri Lankan called Shehan Karunatilaka. It is the most hilarious and fantastic and creative and original book uh, that that I've read on in a, a piece of cricket fiction I've read. Uh, in terms of uh, memoirs, let me see. Of the of the sports memoir that I that I really liked was John McEnroe's serious. You know, mm-hmm. I thought it was. I wasn't a big McEnroe fan when when I was growing up, but I really liked the book because it sounded like the truth to me. It sounded like him talking, and it surprised me. Uh, that's that's what you turn to a sporting memoir for. Sharda Ugra plugged the 2011 novel Chinaman by Shehan Karunatilaka. It's available in the UK from the Jonathan Cape imprint of Random House. In the US, the novel has been released by Grey Wolf Press with the title The Legend of Pradeep Matthew. 
and John McEnroe's 2002 memoir is titled You Cannot Be Serious. It was co-authored by fiction writer and journalist James Kaplan. To close this special episode, we turn to an athlete who has written her own memoir, as well as her three other best-selling books. In her career as a long-distance, open-water swimmer, Lynn Cox has twice set records for the fastest crossing of the English Channel, both times when she was still a teenager. She was the first woman to cross the Cook Strait in New Zealand and the first person ever to swim the Strait of Magellan, the Cape of Good Hope, the Bering Strait, and the icy seas off the coast of Antarctica. She described these swims in her first book, Swimming to Antarctica, published in 2004 by Knopf. As we hear at the start of our interview, researching and writing is something that Lynn has loved throughout her life, just as much as swimming. And in fact, we can describe Lynn not as an athlete who tried her hand at writing, but as a writer who also happens to be a remarkable athlete. So, Lynn, your your book, Swimming to Antarctica, describes how you started swimming. Uh, you started open water swimming at a young age. And, and from the start, you were good at it and you loved it. So what I want to ask about, though, is is writing. So when did you discover your love for writing and how did you cultivate that through the years? Actually, I loved to read as a kid. I would read as many books as I could get my hands on. And I loved the Nancy Drew stories, the, the whole series. I read all of them. And I just couldn't get enough. Oh, I couldn't get enough books. I couldn't, I couldn't read enough. I just loved to open a book and open a world. I knew that that was what would happen when I started reading. So I remember thinking when I was seven or eight years old that, you know, one day I really want to be an author. I really would like to be able to create worlds like this on pages of paper and, and bring people in. And so I knew at a really young age that this was something I really wanted to do. It just took a really long time to get there. So, and something that you mentioned in your first books with, with connecting with this love of books is uh, when you started with your long-distance swims, you, you paid the bills by working as a librarian. Yeah, actually, it was so fantastic because I love the quest. I love to research. I love to have pieces of information and then try to piece it together to figure something out. And so for a while, I worked as a reference librarian, and people would come up to me with such a variety of questions, and it would be like, okay, what do we get to check out now, and what can we do research on? And it was always this search and discovery and the continue on, and it, there's something really fantastic in doing that, and so I loved it. And also, the other part of that was I was really trying to get my first book published, Swimming to Antarctica, and I kept getting blocks of, of how to get it published, and I would talk to different librarians because... I was a substitute, so I work in different areas at different times and meet different different librarians and learn from them. So it was really encouraging to be able to work at the library and, and help people find out the information they wanted. But also, it was really great because I had all these librarians with friends who became my resources and, and who gave me ideas about how to get my first book published. And you mentioned before we started the interview that, that... You spent, what, 21 years working on swimming to Antarctica? Is that correct? Or? 
Actually, yes. I started swimming to Antarctica my senior year of college. I had a professor named Stephen Allaback at UC Santa Barbara who was my mentor, and, and he was teaching this course in creative writing, and we had the option to write a series of short stories. And I just went up to him and said, I really, really want to write a book. I don't want to do short stories. Could I please write a book instead? And he looked at me and said, you know, nobody has ever asked to do that in this class before. And I said, well, you know, I'm a long-distance swimmer, and I'm sure I'm a long-distance writer. And so could I please just do that instead? And so he said, yeah, sure, fine. So my first draft for swimming to Antarctica began my senior year of college. And it would continue on through the next 21 years of trying to find a publisher who would publish it. And I went through five different agents. And basically, a lot of what I learned from long-distance swimming and going through currents and, and being set back was what I was also learning to do with the book. So thinking then that you, you had in mind already in college that you wanted to write a book about your swim, so, so really all of your or most of your long-distance swims um, were you swimming when you were in the water? Were you thinking about how am I going to put this down on the page? I actually was thinking a lot about how do I tell the story, and through the years I kept journals so that I could go back and look at details. And then sometimes I'd go back and recreate information because, for instance, my second book, Grayson, was about a baby whale that got lost off of Seal Beach, California while I was training for Catalina. And I remembered the story so well, but I couldn't remember the way the sunlight hit the water, and I couldn't remember the angle of it or what color changes occurred underwater and, and how that happened. And so, I, you know, years and years and years later, I had to do the swim all over again a number of times to be able to pick up the details that I had lost years ago. But the, the main part of the story was in my head for for years and years and years, and it was only after I wrote Swimming to Antarctica that I felt like I could, I could write Grayson. Lynn, in your book Swimming to Antarctica, you have you have a very, um, I want to say it, an understated, a, a matter of fact style in in describing these these long distance swims of your of your youth. So, despite the cold water and the waves and the ships and the fish, there's this sense from your writing that that you were uh, composed, that you were clear. Uh, clear-minded during your swims. Did that? Uh, does your writing convey your your mental state when you were in the water? Is that deliberate? Yeah, it is really deliberate. I think that what I really try to do when I write is to take the reader in the water with me and and try to give the person who's reading the book the same experience or very close to the same experience I had. Either were different people who have read the book and more recently who tell me when they read Swimming to Antarctica, they have to cover themselves up in a blanket and read it. And I think, oh my gosh, that was exactly what I hoped would happen. I really <laughs> hoped that they would be transported and, and sense or feel or see what I saw. And that, I think, is the magic of telling a story and conveying it to somebody else who then picks it up and, and gets it, that just immerses themselves in the book, in the reading of it, and connects so strongly with what I wrote. And it's just fantastic to have that happen. So that sort of is the highest praise of all for, for somebody to share that, but then also to then share their own story of whatever they experienced and how they experienced it. And that is really cool, you know? Um, but I really do, I try to write the stories in a way where you feel or sense the, the you know, like 
oh gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this now. <laughs> or when did I get myself into this time? Or I thought I really planned this out, and I did. But wow, what a surprise now, and how are we going to deal with this? Because when you do these big swims, you're never alone. You always have a crew who's along with you, and that crew is as professional as you can get it to be, and they're, they're beside you as you go along. Well, I thought of it as... Is, is that your tone is, is so calm, and, and I think of it in particular when you're talking about your first swim of the English Channel and uh, uh, the people in the boat alongside you joining you. So, well, there's an oil tanker coming. Are you going to sprint or are you going to wait here? And, oh, I'll sprint. And I have to remind myself, wait a minute. She's 15 years old, and, and she's going to sprint to beat an oil tanker in the English Channel, and, and yet the writing is, is just so just so calm and matter-of-fact. And, and I was thinking, so when you, when you write about your swims, do you ever stop and think, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe anybody did that. You know, I don't, I don't really look back too much unless people are asking me questions about what I've done before because I'm more looking forward. But... There are times where I do think those things. When I swam around the Cape of Good Hope, I mean, I had no idea that as we'd be climbing down the cliffs to get to the beach, there'd be all sorts of snakes and the shrubs, and you couldn't hold on to the shrubs because you could get bitten. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then, you know, coming down these cliffs and getting to the beach and feeling the thunder of the waves and the whole movement of the beach through these you know, huge waves just shattering on shore and thinking, oh, no, we're going to go out through that. <laughs> you know, so that whole thing. And then a scuba so... diver spears a shark that was going to that was going to eat you in that swim. Actually, yeah, but that, I mean, that wasn't the highlight by any means. You know, <laughs> I really didn't want the shark to be shot, but at the same time, I didn't want to be attacked. So, I was really fortunate that I had been put in touch with the South African South African sort of special forces team that worked in the police department. But for fun, they would go spearfishing there and draw sharks in around them with the blood of, of the fish that they speared. So they were the perfect group to be there with me watching the water, and I couldn't have been watched over better than having them with me. But I would not choose to do that swim again because yeah. I really – understood how dangerous it was, but I understood more <laughs> after the shark was attacked me how real dangerous that swim was. Yeah, yeah. No, that that struck me as well as your most dangerous swim. And, and uh, what struck me, though, in reading your book is there's a white space, and then the next paragraph begins with the sentence, I returned to UC Santa Barbara to complete my junior year of college, and I have to say I laughed out loud. And, and was this something deliberate in your writing in in that first book that you wanted to show yourself as accomplishing really these amazing feats? Well, at the same time, you were just living ordinary life. You were a high school student, then a college student, then a librarian. Uh, yeah, that was. I mean, that was very intentional because it was. It was. It does basically show what these big goals are like that you work so hard, you do all these extraordinary things, and you have extraordinary people who help you, and you achieve the goal, and then you're back at school. You know, it's just, whoa, I have a friend who's an opera singer, and she was on stage creating amazing music, and then 10 minutes later, she's in a track suit, and we're going out to, you know, dinner at a diner, <laughs> you know, with her mom. And it's just like, it's such a contrast. It's hard to fathom the differences from one moment to the next. I have a friend named David Udeman who I wrote about in Swimming to Antarctica who had done this huge swim across the Santa Cruz Channel and it was 
really, really, really tough. And and finally, after 15 hours, and I don't even know how many minutes, he completed the swim. And we all get in the car, and he drove, and we had to stop at a red light. And we're just looking at each other laughing because it would seem so out of place, you know, to have this huge struggle and achieve it, and then you have to stop at a red light. It, <laughs> so that, that I was trying to convey in this book, you know, so much Antarctica, that, you know, big, big goal, and then you're back to reality. And, you know, the realities shift and change as you do them, but there's this also normal normalcy of everyday life. Yeah, yeah. Lynn, I want to ask about your second book, Grayson, which you had uh, already mentioned, and, and this is very different from Swimming to Antarctica. It describes a single morning uh, you were training off the coast of L.A., and, and you encountered this, this baby gray whale who swam with you for hours until it was reunited with its mother. And, uh, and this book it also has a very different tone than Swimming to Antarctica in terms of its writing. And there are some passages that are, that are just lyrical in, in the detail and the description. And I wanted to ask what you were seeking to do as a, as a writer when you wrote Grayson. I wanted to be able to tell that story really poetically. I wanted to try to consider the beauty of the moment and what it was like to have a baby whale swimming beside me. You know, when that happened, it's very far beyond the time of what's going on now where, I mean, it was, it was much earlier than what's going on now where there are all sorts of people doing research in gray whales and, and gray whales will swim over to their, with their babies to different scientists and scientists or people in boats can pet them. I didn't know any of that, any of those things when I was out there swimming with the baby gray whale who I named Grayson. So it was so magical to have this huge creature swimming beside me and at the same time not know what to do and and how to deal with it and if if it was friend or foe and to realize at one moment that he was sort of just like a little puppy you know and he had lost his mom and I had to just help him find his mom so I wanted to write the story in a sweet way but also you know sort of go into the heart and into the what would you feel like if you got lost or how would the mother feel like if she lost her baby? And so, you know, I, I have friends who tell me that they read the story and they just start crying. And I'm thinking, that's so funny in a way, because when I was writing the book, I was crying at different times because, <laughs> because of, of just thinking so hard about what was going on in those moments out there in the ocean. Lynn, I want to ask about your new book, uh, which is published just this summer, titled Open Water Swimming Manual. And uh, like with your other books and with your swims, you did a, a good amount of research for this book. You talked with Navy SEALs and lifeguards and physicians and marine scientists. Uh, in, in writing this book and doing the research, was there anything you learned in, in the course of doing the book where you thought, wow, I wish I would have known that for my own swims? Oh my gosh, you know, that that is what this new book is. It It's basically 40 years of learning from all the different swims and all the different people that I connected with, from all kinds of sports to all kinds of people that are involved with the water. So that was the basis for the book. But then I was able to connect with people that are scientists and physicians, and, and I learned so much, but I think... You know, even beyond that, having to connect with the U.S. Navy SEALs and spend time learning from them, you know, I wished I had known about how to select the best boat, how to 
you know, connect with a competent kayaker, how to figure out navigation better. There were so many things that I learned from the U.S. Navy SEALs that were so helpful, and I wish that I had known all of this before. And actually, it was so fantastic to be able to talk to um, the captain who was in charge of the SEAL training there because he basically said to the different you know, Navy SEALs who I had the chance to talk with, help win in any way you can. Because what he really understood was this book was for athletes and that that their knowledge could help make the sport of open water swimming safer. And so the access they gave me and the things that they taught me were were so fantastic and so helpful. And right now, Lynn, you're in the midst of your book tour for, for the new book. You've been uh, meeting with audiences at, at bookstores, and uh, and you've been having good crowds. And, and of course, your first book, Swimming to Antarctica, was a, was a bestseller, which is, you know, one again, once again, these ironic stories of books that take 20 years to be published, and then they come out, and they're, they're great successes. So as, as you go around and you go to bookstores and you meet with audiences and, and you talk with readers, what is it? Why are readers drawn to the stories of a woman swimming for hours in cold ocean water? You know what? What is it about your book you find that that resonates with readers? I think that the thing that resonates with the readers is that they want to have their own adventures, and they want to look at somebody else who did something. I think that when somebody begins swimming in the open water. It's like they want to start something new. They want to do something different. They want to be energized, and they want to have fun. And I think really that's why there's sort of this surge now in open water swimming. I mean, somebody equated, actually it was Michael Bamberger who writes for Sports Illustrated, who equated the new open water swimming manual with Jim Jim Fix's book, The Complete Book of Running, because he saw that as a way Jim Fix sort of helped to encourage the whole running generation, the whole jogging generation. And you see the Open Water Swimming Manual is the new running book for swimmers, the new book that that people who want to get into the open water are going to use. And it's been really incredible because, you know, people were ordering the Open Water Swimming Manual online before it was even available, available as a book. And I was getting feedback about it before I even started on the book tour. And it's so fantastic to have that immediate response. You know, it used to be that you'd write a book and then eventually you'd get letters from people about, you know, what they thought about it. And now I'm getting emails and Facebook messages and people who have already read it, you know, two weeks or three weeks after it's out telling me, you know, this is my swimming Bible now. This is what I'm using. And I just got an email from somebody back east, uh, Long Island, who said, you know, I've written all sorts of notes in the margins of it because I'm using it to help me train for Catalina. And it's just really fulfilling, immediately fulfilling to see, you know, two two years of work writing the book, but 40 years of, of pulling all this information together and trying to give this as a gift to the next generation of swimmers. And, and hearing that it's really useful and helpful, that makes me feel so happy. <laughs> it makes me feel really gratitude for all those people who taught me, and now I can give what I've learned to the next generation of swimmers. Lynn Cox's newest book is titled Open Water Swimming Manual, an expert survival guide for triathletes and open water swimmers. We also discussed her short autobiographical book, Grayson. 
and her history of the polar expeditions of Roald Amundsen, titled South with the Sun. All three books are published by Knopf. My sincere thanks to Lynn Cox and to all of my guests for appearing on this episode of New Books and Sports. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe to New Books and Sports on iTunes. You can friend us at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. And we are also on Twitter at New Books Sports. You can offer your feedback and find daily links to thoughtful stories by sports writers from around the world. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week. Thank you.